how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 424, where I spoke with actor Diedrich Bader. You know him from shows and movies like Office Space, Napoleon Dynamite, Veep, The Drew Carey Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, American Housewife, and now Lucky Hank, among his over 200 credits. This is one of three interviews this week about Lucky Hank. I also spoke with Meryl Enos, and I'll soon be posting an interview with Paul Lieberstein and Aaron Zellman, the creators. In this interview, we talk about Diedrich's love for physical comedy appreciation for childlike characters, the scene that made him nervous for Lucky Hank, and his view on perseverance over the course of a long career. If it's your first time here, make sure to subscribe, but you can also get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, for free over at brockswinson.com. That's the book and audiobook at brockswinson.com. When I was very little, uh, my dad got a job with the Ford Foundation, and we moved to Paris, and I had um, just learned... English, basically. And then I was thrust into a different language. And a lot of kids adapt really easily. I did not. So, uh, I, you know, they say kids are born linguistic geniuses. Mm, not all of them. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, I I had uh, struggles. And uh, oops, just like with my ear. <laughs> and um, uh, so I, I was kind of like a moody kid. A little kid. And uh, my mother made a deal with my siblings that they could take me, if they took me to the movies, that she would pay for um, all her, all their friends. So uh, I, there's a lot of revival houses or were uh, then in, uh, in Paris. And um, so I went to go see uh, Fred Astaire movies and Marx Brothers movies and Buster Keaton movies, but particularly um, Charlie Chaplin movies. Those were my absolute favorites. And I worked up a little Charlie Chaplin act in my room. My brother, I should say, my brother and I shared a room. So it was our room. But anytime he was out of the room, I would work on my Charlie Chaplin act. And um, then uh, I went to go see, excuse me, a Chaplin pick at um, my favorite theater. And it was my favorite because they had live musical accompaniment. They had an organ player that was right to the right of the uh, screen and a really lovely player to my memory uh, who would improvise um, along to the uh, film. And uh, anyway, the film got caught and burned and uh, the audience booed. And I, uh, I said, you know, nobody boos Charlie Chaplin. And I ran in between the, um, uh, the audience and the screen and I did my little Charlie Chaplin act. And uh, I got a standing ovation. The organ player played and it was, um, it was pretty great. And uh, so I have always uh, wanted to entertain people uh by making them laugh um but i will say my i think my favorite the reason that i focused so much on chaplin was probably the movie uh the kid mm. um because of a combination of just heart-wrenching um feelings love sentiment if you will and and uh and real comedy like great uh, physical comedy that's very well worked out and um um so uh, that, that's, uh, that's kind of my origin story. And the reason that I focused as much as I have uh, over my career 
on uh, comedy. I think um, I think it's it's um, it's a calling for me to try to entertain people in as lighthearted a fashion as possible. Life is hard enough. That was very long. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> okay. I've actually been going down kind of a, a silent film rabbit hole recently as well. What do you think those movies still stand up today? Is it because of the physical comedy? What are some of your thoughts on like, why is it still just as funny as it was like a hundred years ago? I mean, my son broke it down when he was three really um, easily. He said, it's funny because it's not me. Um, you know, people fall down. It's funny. Um there's a whole theory about mechanization of, of uh, humanity and how that uh, mechanization is actually the thing that we find both alarming, disjarring, and really deeply humorous um, because it kind of takes us out of ourselves. Um, the physical comedy, especially in Keaton, I mean, you know, there for for every like genius that we recognize, like Keaton and, and uh, Chaplin, there, there are also ones that weren't great. I mean, um, and there are ones that are largely forgotten who were really great. Uh, because of uh, like um, uh, Fatty Arbuckle, for example, who uh, was uh, incorrectly impugned um, by uh, by that terrible thing that happened in the party in San Francisco. But, you know, he was he was really funny. Um, he was genuinely funny and and innocent of of the thing that he was accused of. Um, but uh, he uh, he was he was really, really funny. Um you know, uh, Keaton did some bits that that I mean, like uh, I would hold up uh, the general, for example, to any uh, comedy ever made. Um, if you don't laugh at that, really, you, you just don't you don't have a sense of humor, honestly, because it's genuinely funny. And it, it uh, um, to do a silent comedy, to do a comedy period that holds people's attention for longer than 60 minutes is is an almost breathtaking thing to do. Um, but to do it without any words. And to follow a story uh, and to keep people's, I mean, you know, I've been in the theater when the general is played and it, it rocks. And I showed it to my kids as their, no, that, that was their second silent movie. The first silent movie was The Circus, uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Circus, which is, which is really, really funny. Um, people have forgotten about it largely, but it has some um, unbelievably funny bits that recur throughout the thing. And, uh, uh, you know, I, to my memory, it's the, the first movie that re really used recurring bits as an ongoing thing to draw the audience in. There's a mule, it's never explained, and, it, and it's inexplicable. There's a mule throughout the entire film who takes an immediate and intense dislike to Charlie Chaplin's character and, and chases him throughout the film. He just appears at random moments, like at any lapse. And it's, it's one of the greatest recurring bits in the history of comedy, but people have completely forgotten it. And my kids, fell off the couch. I mean, my son actually fell off the couch laughing at that. Like the beauty of a recurring bit. I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. I had too many <laughs> cups of coffee. Um, uh, the beauty of a recurring bit is that like series television, like you, you see like a little bit of a setup and you, you know what's coming. And, and um, so like, you know, he established the mule early on and would do longer bits, but then sometimes he would just show the mule and just see Charlie and run away and that was it it was less than three seconds five seconds huge huge laugh and um it's a little like uh you know uh, the major part of my career or if you call it a major career <laughs> um was the beverly hillbillies and uh i watched uh all of them i watched every single episode of that in in research uh, to do uh, jethro 
you wouldn't think that because I, I didn't really do uh, Max any justice, but uh, but I did watch them all. And one of the things that I really loved was, uh, I guess it was my first experience with uh, what we now uh, call, uh, what do we call it when we watch it all together? Binge, binge watching. Yeah. Because um, I would just sit there for hours, 12, 14 hours, just watching Beverly Hillbillies over and over again. You'd think my brains would come out of my ears, but it was really kind of fascinating to watch the formula of it. And a recurring bit like, you know, Granny's Root Cellar or, um, you know, the malapropism. Um, it, it's just great. Like, um, you know, the, uh, this is just a tiny example, but um, the, uh, the hillbillies learned that there was a cat burglar in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and the whole episode hung on the misperception of, of, cat, of cat burglars, that they were going to steal cats. And the minute they brought it up, you know, I started giggling because I was like, well, man, they're going to get that wrong. <laughs> they're going to get that wrong. And uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, um, I, I love that element of it. Uh, so, uh, so no, I think silent films do totally hold up. I would recommend those two. I mean, you know, oh, pretty much only, I mean, uh, every Buster Keaton movie once he was director and writer. I would 100% recommend. And uh, I would say easily a lot of Charlie Chaplin uh, pictures still really do hold up. I mean, The Great Dictator, there's some slack. Uh, but uh, but yeah, do you have kids, bro? We have a one-year-old, yeah. Just oh, all right. Baby, so yeah, yeah. Uh, is it boy or girl? Girl. Oh, congratulations. Thank you, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been doing some research on like stunt films, so interviewing stunt people, and I classify the early silent films kind of in that era. I was thinking that about your physical comedy, um, especially playing Jethro, like the bowling pin scene. Do you just like, like when you were a kid, like mimicking Chaplin, do you just see that as like, I've got to be fully committed to this guy, to this, like his perception? Yeah. I. Uh, I have a great love of physical comedy. I think there is a dearth of it in comedy period. Um, I, I wish there were more. I mean, it's funny when people fall down and uh, I introduce it as often as I possibly can. American Housewife would also be an example of something where I tried to introduce physical comedy as much as possible. Um, the Drew Carey show had a lot of physical comedy in it. Um, I, I really um, like to introduce the idea of uh, using the body as something that's really funny and can be manipulated really easily. Um, I work, uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I work on physical comedy bits for hours uh, before I actually uh, shoot it. Um, because I want to tighten it. I want to find out what's funniest as fast as possible um, because of the nature of television, you know, in comedies, you only have 22 minutes and, and um, uh, better, uh, better call, better call Hank. Uh, and lucky Hank, you only have like, you know, uh, 40, 42, 44 minutes. Um, so you have to do everything as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, very perceptive of you. That's something I really try to uh, emphasize. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, Buster Keaton uh, lamented when sound came in because all of a sudden every, uh, movies were plays and people just stood around and talked all the time. And uh, uh, I think we're still a little bit stuck on that. Um, and uh, I, I'm sorry to, uh, that that's the case because no, no, written jokes are great. And, um, you know, it's been the majority of the reason I have the big house. But, uh, uh, um, but I, I love physical comedy and I wish that we would use it more.
How do you approach, so some of the bigger roles that people may remember you for, you mentioned, so Beverly Hillbillies, Drew Carey show, um, Office Space, you're playing kind of a lower IQ person. Your more recent yeah. roles, uh, American Housewife, um, Lucky Hank, you seem to be a much smarter character. Do you approach <laughs> those the same way? How do you think about the two differences just in like what you can get away with, I guess, in comedy? Well, um, I love playing dumb characters. Uh because they, I love to see the child in people. Like, I feel like I really know someone when I see them having fun um, or are unguarded. Um, I, I love to see the kid. That's why I love meeting parents of uh, my friends or, uh, you know, anyone really. Because um, you get to, you get a glimpse of their childhood, just a glimpse of it. And I think it's very revealing to people. So I've always played dumb characters as uh, children, really. Um, uh, Oswald was just a big kid and Jethro was the same. I mean, you know, um, dumb would be an easy label. A childlike is, is more what I was going for. Um, but, uh, but that said, I have a real fondness for, for, for really dumb characters. I just find it funny that their perspective is different. Like it always, you know, uh, I always thought like, how would a kid see this as opposed to like, what would an adult see? And, uh, you know, there there was a joke on the Drew Carey show, for example, uh, where as as <laughs> as a wedding present when Kate and uh, Oswald got um, engaged, someone gave them uh, a ball, a red ball. When we did the table read, I laughed so hard that the producer thought like that I was uh, upset or something, even though I was laughing at it. So they actually cut the joke. And I went back to the writer's room and I went, what happened to the ball, the red ball joke? Uh, and they said, oh, we thought you thought it was too like a kid. And I was like, this is exactly, this is precisely what I like. Um, because he wouldn't be excited. Like somebody gave him maybe the ball as a joke because you're a child. But Oswald's perspective is, oh, here's this great ball. Like I get to, this is great. What a great gift this is. And um, that to me is always what's fun about playing uh, you know, ostensibly dumb characters is that their perspective is different. And it's often, um, you know, beautiful, sweet. They see the sweeter side of things um, uh, like a child does, you know, a child just assumes the best. Um, and uh, I think that's a, that's a very valuable lesson for, for people to have. Um, but yeah, I, at the same time, you know, I'm the, uh, I'm the dumbest of a, of a smart family. And um, I, I guess after a while, I got tired of uh, playing dumb and I wanted to play uh, somebody smart and uh, uh, who had, you know, jokes that were literate, um, but still funny. Uh, so this was a, this was an awesome opportunity for me. And to be with an ensemble like this, it's just, I mean, it's like, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I, I'm, I'm so excited that I'm on this show. I'm deeply, deeply proud of it. You know? Um, yeah. So anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I might, I might jump around a little bit. Um, yeah. I'm curious too, like when you're playing a less intelligent character and even like sitcoms in the nineties, there wasn't a lot of growth. That was very famous with Drew Carey Seinfeld, um, American housewife. Do you think audiences are expecting like a, some growth in character, even though it is expanded over five or six years, how do you see that? And then portray that? That's a fantastic question, uh, Brock. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it's almost a cliche to say now that people's viewing habits have changed. Um, and I think what people wanted 
from television because it was basically classic television was for things to stay the same. Um, they wanted the same show over and over and over again. In fact, I mean, the years that the Drew Carey show, uh, our ratings went into the toilet was when we basically tried to, when I say we, I had nothing to do with it. I was just an actor. It showed up. Um, to reinvent the show you know they they changed Winford louder and made it a internet company uh we got rid of the kate character um all, all that kind of stuff all that change i don't think the audiences really wanted that i think they wanted the same show and um i mean in defense of, of drew carey show and, and seinfeld um they they sort of wanted the same because if you do grow you have to be going somewhere and mm. i mean that was i think what friends it's like there's only so many couplings that you can do. And there's also only so long you can do the will they or won't they, which yeah. Cheers did. Because you, you essentially you want, the, you want the same joke over and over again. But because people now, maybe with the advent of 24, that might have been the first really serialized television show that sort of changed the way people wanted to watch television. And... um Maybe I mean I don't know I'm not a television historian but uh, but that's the first one that leaps to mind anyway. Um, people see things as a whole now. I mean, as an entire story because it is it's a basically a long format film or or um, a novel as opposed to a short story. You know, it, um, it, and uh, I think that's what people expect now. They expect a full, rich character that does change. I think that's because viewing habits have changed because you can watch it as a whole, you know, you, and you don't have to hold, hold it in your head. Um, and uh, I, I think that's the beauty of it. You know, I mean, you, you wouldn't have the impact of seeing Hank's father and Hank's realization uh, of his father's dementia. Hmm. That wouldn't have the impact that it does without the episodes that led up to it. And that arc, I mean, if we did it in, in the span of one episode, wouldn't really hit. I mean, it would hit a little, and it would hit for those who had personally experienced that, like myself. My my dad died of Alzheimer's, so anytime it's brought up in any narrative context, and it can be just like a glancing, it can be badly done, and it'll still affect me. And I I know it. I know in my head that it's badly done, but but it still works because of the pain that it triggers. Um, but is there a goose outside the house? Do you hear that? That I was crazy. Did you hear that? Is that a promo for the show? Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm going to go out and box it. Yeah. <laughs> Better watch out, Goose. This is on brand. Well, let's talk about the new show a little bit. So that one, I think you even have more freedom doing eight episodes instead of like 24, where you're trying to kind of go as slow as possible. What was kind of your take on your character over the course of eight episodes? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question. Uh, What's uh, fascinating about it, if you think about the arc of the whole show, is that Tony is very small in the first couple of episodes. Like the, the part is very small, and you would think that um, that it's a small part, but it actually isn't. It's building to something, and it, um, you know, is one of the really stable relationships in uh, Hank's life, um, probably the steadiest. Um, because there are less expectations in a friendship than there are in um, a, a loving couple. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fact that he almost destroys that relationship too um, in uh, episode six uh, is what they were building to. And they, they built it back in episode seven, but um, 
it's it was really nice to have that build and for the executive producers to uh to point out like where we were going and um and to know that and to lay that in is it's just a it's just a luxury and um uh, to have somebody who's really in charge of a show well i shouldn't say that it's like impugning um a lot of showrunners. So the thing is with 22 episodes or 24, as you were pointing out, I mean, Drew Carey sometimes we did 27 episodes. Uh, after a while, you run out, you run out of stories. <laughs> I mean, you can't possibly know where you're going for that long. I mean, I guess the central concept of 24 belies that, but, um, but, uh, you know, for the majority of television shows, you know, you're just kind of pulling it out and doing the best that you can. And that's the truth of it. Um, they, they do the very best they can. Um, and, and, uh, uh, but but it's hard. I mean, after, you know, like they, they storyboard, uh, not storyboard, they, well, they kind of put on the big board, you know, where they're going for the first 10, 12 or whatever. And then they have a longer thing. But every writer will admit to you that by 15 on a on a large show, like a 22 episode arc, it, it's hard. They've kind of run out and uh, and they need they need some time to kind of re-examine that whole thing and see where we're going with that and also see if the show's going to get picked up, obviously. But um, uh, but in this, because there's eight and they had the template of the novel to, uh, to go off of, they really knew where they were going. Um, and for an actor to be able to arc out a performance like that, you know, I mean, for Tony, and have you seen episode six? I've seen them all now, yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, for Tony in episode six, you know, um, Hank has other relationships, but Tony, you know, he's still in love with his first wife who divorced him a really long time ago and um, married again. And then, and then has gone through a succession of relationships. His closest relationship in his life is Hank. Hmm. And um, he put himself in that position. It's not Hank's fault, but that's a lot to put on a relationship, even if you're trying to make it as casual as, as a, a male friendship often is. It's it's everything to him. And, and the betrayal of knowing that Hank perceives their relationship differently is, uh, is, is as heartbreaking as getting broken up with. You know, it's, uh, it's a very hard realization for Tony. Um, because he put all his eggs in one basket for a weird analogy, but um, you know he, he has invested everything in this relationship with with uh, with Hank, and um, and Hank uh, is in a different relationship, and um, that's hard for anyone in any perspective. But for Tony, it's particularly difficult, and um, uh, and that was a that was really it was really fun to play, and um, that scene in the bar with Bob. You know, I was so nervous about it, uh, Brock, um, that I I didn't sleep the night before. Like, I literally didn't sleep one wink. I was so intensely nervous about getting it right. Um, and what was fascinating was that, you know, I came in and I uh, I was almost crying because I was so frustrated that I, I didn't have the, I thought I wouldn't have the energy to do the scene in the way that I wanted to do it. Mm. And uh, I told Bob that. Because uh, he saw that I was, I'm uh, on a set. I'm a, I'm very easygoing, but I was, you know, uh, dark that day. And uh, Bob, uh, who's amazing, uh, noticed because he's a perceptive and lovely guy, and um, came up and asked me how I was doing. 
And I said, I, I'm not doing very well because, uh, you know, this scene means a lot to me. I don't get to play a lot of this stuff in my career. And I feel like I'm just exhausted and I can't do it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, he, he sort of used an old uh, thing, but it, it was perfect at that exact moment. And the reason that it's a cliche is that it works. Um, he said, use it. Hmm. Use the exhaustion. Use your desperation. You know, use your everything you know it this scene means a lot to you the presentation meant a lot to tony he'd been working for two years he broke it down so perfectly he knew exactly where we were going with it because he perceives things not only as an actor but also as a writer so he knew the larger scale of everything and um rather than moment to moment which is what unfortunately a lot of actors fall into um and it was a perfect thing to say at that exact moment um and uh you know bob uh is not exactly loquacious <laughs> but he's a really lovely guy and uh he, and very perceptive and said just exactly the right thing and i, I will always appreciate that it seems like it's particularly perfect for him because he also comes from comedy and it was better call saul has kind of gone more in towards drama in the last couple of years yeah he he appreciates the opportunity to stretch out and um he also appreciates uh, one of the things that's been frustrating uh, for my uh, career um, is that because I've done so much broad comedy, um, a lot of people don't want me to do uh, a dramatic part. They don't want me to, they just want me to be a dumb, uh, you know, character. Um, uh, I worked uh, with uh, Stephen Frears on a pilot and Frears uh, had a really hard time getting me on board the show. Uh, the show that we did, it, it was never picked up, but uh, he had to convince a lot of people and, and found it astounding that they, they couldn't get that I could also do drama because in England, the perception is if you can act, you can act. Um, so it's it, it, because you can do comedy, which is hard. <laughs> it's not easy um, that you can do, you know, whatever. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but give the guy a shot. But in America, it's difficult to break through all that. And so I, I give um, Sony AMC um, and, and our producers a lot of thanks and deep gratitude for giving me the opportunity to, to actually play something more realistic. Um, it was a, a great opportunity for me, and I, I um, genuinely appreciate it. We're almost out of time. I usually like to ask people break-in stories, but yours is really unique. I'm, I'm curious if you have more of a story about perseverance. Was there a point where you wanted to quit and you kept going and kind of why so? Yeah, that's very perceptive of you. I think that's a through line going through this uh, uh, interview and I am uh, inadvertently revealing myself. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think before the show, I'd gotten tired of being me. Um, uh, a grateful Um you know, uh, put us in a financial position where uh, we're, if we're not foolish, we're going to be okay. Uh, especially as um, I, I do a lot of voiceover work. I don't know if you know that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was tired of the things that people were interested in, in me for. I was just tired of them. And I was just wondering uh, if I really wanted to continue being an on-camera actor. I have lots of friends who have stopped working on camera um, and just do voiceovers um, because number one, they're fun. And, uh, and number two, keeps your insurance going. You know, I still have a wife and kids. So I got, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, I was kind of done. Uh, 
it felt that way anyway. Like I, I was just tired. I just didn't. And auditioning was very difficult over Zoom and recording. And, and I missed going into a room. I missed being able to take notes and meet people and get their vibe. And, you know, auditioning is a, is a almost separate skill from working on a set. And uh, it, uh, there's so many different things to it. Uh, and I had over the years really, uh, I mean, not to pat myself too much on the back, but I really learned how to do it. And um, uh, uh, all those skills are essentially like completely thrown out. It's like I can make a wagon wheel and all of a sudden people are driving cars. You know, it's like, we don't make wagon wheels anymore. We don't need them. Um, uh, figuring out a room, uh, getting the vibe, taking notes, all of those things don't exist anymore. Um, and uh, I recording at home for myself, uh, I was ending, ended up being too critical of myself. I wouldn't commit to a take uh, because I knew I could stop. Uh, and uh, I started editing, directing myself. And, and these are things that actors shouldn't do. You should just commit to doing it because people very often aren't watching themselves. You know, they're doing the best they can with uh, seeing how other people are perceiving uh, the mirror psychology idea. But anyway, um, yeah, I was, I was tired of it. And uh, then this script came across and I couldn't believe my luck. I honestly couldn't believe my luck uh, that anyone would want to see me for this because it's such an interesting show. It's like succession in that it's like, there's strong elements of comedy throughout the whole thing, but it is, it's very dramatic. And the consequences, while not like zombies, um, uh, are real for those people. You know, they, their world is easily shattered. Um, and to play all of those moments is, is, uh, uh, is, is a beautiful thing. It rejuvenated my, um, my love of acting, of show business, uh, of being in an ensemble. This ensemble is so fantastic. And we got to know each other so well. That's the beauty of being on location, frankly. You're away from your family, which is kind of hard. Um, but you really get to be close with the people that you're working with. And it means a lot on the set because you you have this relationship that's just really deep. You know, you really can look into each other's eyes and know the other person. Cedric and I had, had known each other before, um, but I, uh, the rest of the cast, I, I got to know. And we got really close because... We went out all the time. It was, Bob sort of enforced that. And at first I was like, maybe I just want to. And then I ended up really loving it because um, because they're all smart, interesting, deep, lovely people uh, who are committed to their craft. And uh, uh, it was a great experience for me. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.